grieving. Some families will be lost to one another forever. To those of you who face the difficulties of reconnecting with family and establishing ongoing relationships, we say sorry. We offer this apology in the hope that it will assist your healing and in order to shine a light on a dark period of our nation's history. To those who have fought for the truth to be heard, we hear you now. You're listening to Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. I'm one of your hosts, Jo Sparrow. This podcast is a production of Jigsaw Queensland Post-Adoption Support Service. However, the views expressed are those of the people participating, not necessarily Jigsaw Queensland. The podcast discusses adult themes and listener discretion is advised. Hi, it's Jo here. For some adopted people, the search for their biological parents ends at a gravestone. This abrupt ending can create an overwhelming sense of grief and sadness, made worse by a lack of answers and a profound sense of guilt for leaving a search too long. Sometimes our search leads us not to a gravestone, but to a complex family dynamic or severed family relationships that can make it challenging to learn about and connect with our biological roots. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organisations such as LinkUp have a process for these cases known appropriately as graveside reunions. These special types of reunions allow the returning child to grieve the loss of their parent or in some cases child, while at the same time being given the opportunity to connect, reconnect with their extended family community and country. So what can the broader adoptee community learn from this to allow graveside endings to become reunions that comfort grief and loss with connection and being part of something larger and more grounded than that one relationship? I recently had the experience of connecting with my biological roots um, in Sydney, and today I'll be chatting with Caroline Slade, our forced adoption support service team leader and proud Yuggera woman, about ways to connect with your biological family, community and culture when faced with these issues and how I applied them in my situation. Carolyn wrote an article that inspired this episode for our Winter 2022 Bits and Pieces newsletter, which is available on our website if you'd like to have a read. Welcome, Caroline. It's great to have you join me today. Thanks for having me here, Jo. It's a little bit different for me today because I don't normally, um, I'm not normally the subject of the conversation, um, but I figure I have had almost three years of people um, opening up their lives to me. So I might return the favour and open up a little bit about my story as well. Caroline, in your article, you wrote that grief and loss are an essential part of the reunion process. What did you mean by this? I think what I was trying to say is the first lesson is that you can't have one without the other and that grief and loss and letting go are an essential part of the journey and that sometimes the end of the search doesn't come with a gravestone, but it might come with a parent whose sadness and trauma prevents a relationship from taking root. Or the difficulty of biology with no shared history can sometimes prove to be too large of an obstacle. It's still a harm that's compounded by the unprocessed grief of the original loss. So um, because you're on the other side of the microphone today, Joe, could you tell (laughs) us about your experience and what led you to Sydney? 
Yeah, for sure. Um, I guess like a, a little bit of background. Um, I met my mother in 1991 when I was 19 years old. And um, going into that meeting, I think we all, as much as we shouldn't or should try to think and manage, uh, think about and manage our expectations, we can't help but have some expectations when we go into these reunions. And um, being 19, I certainly not put anywhere near enough thought into what I wanted out of the reunion. Um, but I know that one thing I had hoped for was that I would not only get to meet my mother and my brother, but also that I would get to meet her extended family. Um, because growing up, I'd had this this weird kind of craving for a grandmother figure in my life, like a loving, nurturing grandmother figure. I remember I used to sit um, at a table and have little tea parties with this imaginary grandmother figure. And it's someone that when I needed comfort, like I would even sort of try and imagine, you know, an imaginary grandparent figure giving that comfort. So when I met my mother, I very much was hoping to meet extended family and, um, and maybe that there would be a grandmother in the family that I could connect with. So when I met her, um, as amazing as it was, I was disappointed in some ways because um, both her mother and father had passed away already. Um, her mother had passed away when my mother was only 10 years old um, by suicide. And because of the complexities of, you know, the dynamics in that family, my mother had no contact with any extended family anymore. So um, I really only had the information that she was able to tell me about her family and I could sense that that was also traumatic for her to dig into. Um, so I didn't push things. I didn't ask things that I thought might be difficult for her to answer. So there was just a big mystery at that side of the family and it was something that I felt really compelled to want to, um, to connect with. So what led me to Sydney is that if we fast forward to when um, I think it was 2017, I did an ancestry DNA test um, and it, some of it was to find out, you know, the roots where my, um, you know, DNA comes from, what parts of the world. And, you know, I was a Euro tramp, <laughs> it's like a bit of a mutt from all over um, Europe. But one of the unexpected things is that two years after I did the test, um, I was actually um, able to make connections with two first cousins of my mother. So um, one was from her mother's side and the other was from her father's side. So suddenly I had access to information um, that didn't carry all of that possible digging up of trauma for my mother, who I now sort of have quite sketchy contact with. It's not a lot of contact because it's very difficult for her. Um, so suddenly I had people who I could ask questions of and these two women were amazing because they opened up some stories in my family tree that started to make a lot of sense for me with my own experience as a mother and of adoption and it kind of opened up maybe a chain of events that led to me being adopted. Um, so suddenly I was very interested because I had access to this information and they were so wonderful about you know sharing bits of information about the family but it was like I had gifted from them a um, almost like a coloring in book picture but it was all black and white no one had colored it in yet so I started to figure out you know who was who in the zoo and some of the things that had happened but the color wasn't there for me yet still which is how I sort of feel about all of the relationships in my life as an adopted person there 
they're very opaque. Um, I understand who the players are and I understand what happened, but the connection is very difficult for me and it's not strong so that the colour and the warmth isn't there. So I decided that I wanted to go down to Sydney and I made some very specific plans about wanting to meet these two women and have some more conversations with them and also to go and visit um, the Rookwood Cemetery, which is where seven of my ancestors are all buried, including my grandmother who took her own life, plus her parents are buried with her, um, a great-grandmother on the other side and then her mother as well. So, And they all became very interesting actors in the story of my family life because they're all the ones who are involved in um, a series of events happening that I think kind of led to where I ended up. So, um, so that's the main thing. Plus, I also wanted to do visit two homes in Sydney, in Concord, Sydney, um, which is where my mother grew up and where her father grew up before her. Uh, and then around the corner was where my grandmother had grown up, um, you know, not very close by. So these are all places I was interested in visiting. I guess, and the reason also was just, I don't even know what the reason was. I wanted to get more information. I wanted to see if I could feel some connection um, but mostly I wanted, wanted to consolidate, I guess, what was 30 years of reunion history and research for me to try and understand my own story and who I was and who my family was. How was that? <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot to um, what led you to Sydney. So yeah. you touched on what the second lesson in this is, which is that more complicated process of building a family tree. Mm -hmm. And I really liked your analogy of a colouring in page that's black and white with no colour added. Yeah. And that, you know, that's the extra layer. So that's that putting together an understanding of the people that came before you and the stories and the relationships that created you. So much more than a list of names on a family tree with, you know, um, you know, Joanne, whatever, born this date, died that date. It's about filling in those stories and, yeah, how they connect you to the family. Yeah. And that understanding of family allows a sense of being something bigger to grow and it's that that grounds you, I suppose, mm -hmm. or can ground you and colour in those black and white spots on that colouring in page. Um, and it can foster the start of an un uninterrupted narrative because for adoptees especially, there's an interruption in the narrative of I was born, I had parents, and now I'm where I am. Mm -hmm. There's a part of that that becomes a disconnect and that finding those connections to the bigger family tree are one way to recreate the connections mm -hmm. so how did you go about connecting with your family on your Sydney trip so you mentioned your two female relatives yeah um I think one of the things that I actually left out but I maybe should add in because it might help you know color in this story uh is that I think as adopted people, sometimes we go to some really interesting links to try and find connections and understand ourselves in the past. Um, and one of the interesting little segues I had was that I went to a psychic medium once when um, my son was only a couple of years old and I was really struggling with my adoption experience at that time and being a mother. And so I'd gone to this um, lady who professed to speak to the dead for you and um, converse and I was a little skeptical but um when I walked in it was a strange experience because she when she was doing her you know communication with the other side her eyes kind of 
I don't even know how to describe it. They weren't looking at me anymore. They were looking somewhere else near me. And as soon as I walked in, she said to me, um, your grandmother is here and she just won't stop touching you. She's just touching your hair. She's giving you kisses. She's just hugging you. She's all over you. And um, at the time I was thinking, well, who is this? Because the only grandmother I knew is still alive. Um, Another one had died when I was like six months old. This is on my doctor family side. And of course, I didn't know anybody on the other side of the spectrum. I didn't know any of my mother's family. Um, and I hadn't met my father at that stage. So I was like, who is this? But um, she just said, she's hugging you. She's kissing you. She's saying that if she'd been there, she would never have let it happen. And I just like a damn broke. Like, so it was the first time I'd really just sobbed about adoption you know or you know I'm not a particularly emotional person and um I didn't know who this woman was I was thinking could it be you know my grandmother who took her own life or you know but I felt no connection to her so I just didn't know so kind of ever since then too I had felt this desire I don't know almost like a pull to go to Sydney but I didn't know anybody I didn't know anything about the area there was nothing to pull me back so those two relatives that appearing in my life were kind of like the cement I needed I guess to feel like I could step into Sydney and have something I was going to yeah so um I actually made plans to go to Sydney back in 2020 in April dun, dun, dun. <laughs> COVID happened and no sooner had I booked my accommodation and everything um and the whole thing blew up so I didn't get to go and, you know, nothing with, with Queensland, with all of our border closing, um, there was just no opportunity for me to make that trip again until this year in June. Um, and at first I was very frustrated by that because I'm a kind of personality that when I want something to happen, I want it to happen now. I want the answers now. I want everything now and I want it my way. Um, so having to put pause on that was very kind of humbling and in hindsight, was actually very important because it slowed me down and it allowed me to process things a lot and go back through all of my research and, um, I don't know, I calmed down about the whole thing. And by the time the trip rolled around, if it had been cancelled again and postponed, I would have been okay with it because I've kind of learnt in this process that things don't always happen at Joe's speed, they happen at the speed they're supposed to. So... We drove down to Sydney. Um, I had a, um, a co-pilot with me, which was my husband. Um, and I think if you're on one of these journeys, if you have somebody in your life who you trust and are close to and who you know is going to be a good ride or die for you on one of these trips, it's really worthwhile having that person with you. And if you don't, then, um, you know, you be that person for you and you take a lot of self-care as well. But I was lucky enough to have my husband with me and, um, the first thing that we did when we got to Sydney um, is we went out to Rookwood Cemetery and I had taken with me because I'd been talking with you and other people in the lead up to this about how can I, how can I do something that connects me forever to these relatives in the cemetery. And so um, I ended up buying six crystals, uh, little stones. So there was two rose quartz, two amethyst and two selenite. And each of those have, you know, their little crystal meanings. I think my dog's about to bark. Okay, um, so I had two of each of them. And my idea with it was um, kind of like the Jewish people when they visit a, a gravestone, they leave a rock. Um, I had thought I would interact with these stones at each gravesite. There was three gravesites. 
and I would leave one and I would take one back with me after sort of interacting with it there. Um, and I knew which stone I wanted to leave at which grave and for what reason. So um, my husband helped me find, I mean, Rookwood Cemetery, anyone who lives in Sydney and has been there will know it's like a city. It is the biggest thing I've ever seen. And even though I had done a lot of research on the grave sites, locations and everything, it was still difficult to find. But having Baden there with me, um, you know, we walked around and he helped me, you know, stay with it and find them. And um, so we did, we found my grandmother who'd taken her in life and her mum and dad at one site. And um, one of the really nice things about having Baden there with me was that I was sort of sitting at the, um, at the gravesite just thinking, you know, and next thing I know, I could notice he was moving in the background and he was actually cleaning off all these tiles that had washed down from a, a gravesite that was higher. And that was just so beautiful to me that he was taking the time to clean up this grave of my ancestors and that he was wholly invested in connecting with them as well. Um, and that was just like a really beautiful moment. And then we went to a second grave site, which was my great grandmother, Daisy, who is very important in my story. Um, and her husband as well, George. So we stayed there and I actually took a maple leaf um, from those graves, three maple leaves, and I um, kept one and I gave one to the two cousins when I met them. And um, then we went into this really overgrown patch to find a grave site from like 1927, no, or 1929, I can't remember. Um, really difficult to find. Everything was overgrown. We only had five minutes to go because we were rushing to meet the first cousin after that in Bondi. And um, anyway, eventually found it. And that was really amazing too. And I left um, a stone on each of those. So um, I left an amethyst with my grandmother who'd taken her life because I feel like it has some healing properties and to let go of things and um, to find some peace and, and healing. Um, I left... Uh, the selenite with my great-grandmother Daisy because I really wanted to take a little, if there was anyone I was taking back with me to look over my life, it was her that I wanted. And I left rose quartz, which I think has um, a really big mothering type vibe and um, very caring with Daisy's mother because Daisy's mother had actually been very supportive of her in a difficult time. So that was the story at the cemeteries. And we also went to the homes that... Um, I mentioned earlier, so the home that my mother had grown up in and that her father had grown up in before her and Daisy had lived there as well. Um, and so that house, I could see the bones of the house that used to be like it was when my mother lived there, but then it had also been built up on. Um, but I could still actually see the shed beside the house where my grandmother had taken her life by an overdose. Um, and I sort of was... I didn't want to get out of the car and once we sat there for a little while, you know, I'm the kind of person that compartmentalizes things. I don't feel the emotions in the moment very much. And so I was like, okay, you know, we can go to the next house now. And Baden said to me, Joan, we came a really long way and you did a lot of planning to be here. Like, let's just take a minute. And so he sort of kept me in that space. And then we started talking about it and I just started um, thinking about the painful things that had happened in that home. Um, there was a lot of mental illness and um, a lot of sadness, a lot of bad things that had happened. Um, and I just started crying. Like I really started getting very upset about it and just feeling um, 
a lot of sadness for the pain that had happened there. You know, I'd been conceived while my mother still lived in that house and she wasn't supported while she was there. And I think I, I felt like I let something go um, by being there and letting that out. And I also kind of feel like I let something go for them, like an acknowledgement of the things that happened that I understood um, that somebody cared about it. So it was, um, you know, it was actually a really important part of the trip. And then we went around to my other grandparents' house around the corner where my grandmother had grown up and um, had a look at that as well. So that was all quite big. Um, <laughs> and then we met um, that same afternoon, I met one of the cousins. So from my grandmother's side, um, her mother, my so this cousin, her mother had been my grandmother's sister and they had both experienced mental illness and um, one of them had addiction problems. And, uh, and so talking through some of those things um, really made me feel a lot for my grandmother because I have a photo um, here in my office of my mother as an infant and her mother, and it was taken at the Crown Street Women's Hospital because my mother was the first baby born on Christmas Day of that year. And so a newspaper journalist had come and taken that photo. And uh, a couple of days later when they left that hospital, um, my grandmother went into a mental health institution um, for nine months and my mother was farmed out to relatives to be looked after. So her first experience of her mother was abandonment as well, so being separated. Um, and then that continued to happen many times until she was 10 and her mother ultimately took her life. Um, so it was, it was interesting to just talk through some of those issues because I think my mother has like a, um, a lot of resentment towards her mother and, and disliked her because of the environment at home while she was growing up. But I could sort of think about the fact that my grandmother, it took her nine years after being married and against all medical advice to have her first child. And I think about how much she must have wanted my mother um, and how important it was to, to have a child and then to have her mental health issues come up to a point where she couldn't cope, um, you know, and the fact that nobody was able to support her with that and, you know, it ended the way it did. So just talking through some of those issues was really interesting and, but also knowing that um, there had been some love in the family as well as, you know, all of these sad things. But um, that cousin also, when I arrived there, she had this suitcase and uh, it turned out that she'd taken um, a suitcase that belonged to my great-grandfather that he used to take everywhere, you know, even to shopping centres to pick up his groceries and it has his name all printed inside and his address of the house that we'd gone to visit. And she decoupaged um, photos of all of the family, including him, on the top of that suitcase. And then inside it she had all of these original black and white photos of all of our family, grandparents, great-grandparents, um, and uh, as well as those, she put in some crystal from like 1815 and had my grandmother's name on it and some other little items that belonged to my grandmother. And she also had a hat in there, a smoker's hat that belonged to my great great grandfather, who was a gold mine manager. And there was a smoking hat. And she also had a photo in there that um, of him wearing that hat. So all of these things that connected to the family and what was so amazing was that she was not just showing me, she was giving them to me. Um, 
So I now have brought all of these things home. They're all sitting behind me as I talk now. Um, and just, I left there just feeling like the colour had seeped into that colouring in page. So suddenly they weren't just, all of these people weren't just names I'd been told, photos I'd seen and not connected with felt incredibly connected, which is the first time in my entire adoption experience after meeting my mother, my father, my brother, some extended relatives. It's the first time I just absorbed and this was my family that I was looking at. And the next day I met my other cousin and she showed me lots of photos as well and I, I took scans of them all and um, I don't know, it was, yeah, it, I want to say it was probably the most cathartic experience of my entire adoption process since I had a reunion, but really it was kind of like the culmination of all of that. So all of that had to happen before I could experience this moment, have it mean what it did, because if I hadn't done all of the other stuff, it wouldn't have meant as much. So all of it was part of it, but it was the culmination. It was just really beautiful. I loved what you said about the ritual that you came up with and there is something so important about rituals and it doesn't matter what they are and it could have been anything as long as it was something you could connect with and understand mm -hmm. and, um, yeah, there is something really important about um, rituals and what it can do for you. Um, so you went back to Sydney and that's the third one which is about that connection to community and it's the much bigger, broader sense of belonging. And it relies on a shared understanding of life and its hardships and its celebrations. And you can experience it in two diff really different ways. One is to spend time in the community, as you did, that your parents and grandparents were part of. And you talked about, you know, going to the homes that they lived in and, and the others is to, of course, join with adoptee community through attending events or being part of a peer support group. And these two in balance can provide the comfort. So you create a community, both the community that is Joe's and the broader community that you sit in of people that share your experiences or your understandings of life. Um, how have you managed to build your community? And just before you answer that, I do have to say that I think it's lovely that you took your husband to meet your grandmother, even if it was slightly different than the way it looked in most people's worlds. Yeah, yeah. And I had thought about taking my kids too, and they might have been all right, but I didn't want to be rushed through anything, you know, and at 21 and 13, they, they certainly probably weren't going to be that patient with some of the things I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, that connection with community and building community is really important. Um, and it was really important to me. I mean, you know, when people research ancestry, they so often are looking at the father's side, you know, the man's side and, and following that line. And I've got to be honest, I'm, I'm totally uninterested in the man's side of my ancestry tree. I want to know about the women because it's the women I connect with and it was the women I knew I was carrying something from. Like there was something in me I knew I was carrying something from the women, particularly on my mother's side. There was just something in me and in my experience that was coming down the generations. Um, and so connecting with community was really important 
and I connected not only with those women that I met and, um, you know, the community where I'd grown up, but going to those grave sites kind of allowed me to really connect with it, you know, the chain of events that had happened that led to me. And, and so what had actually happened, I guess, is that my grandmother, Daisy, um, it turns out when she was 17, she was most likely um, sexually assaulted and became pregnant um, as a result before she was married, obviously. And she must have been supported. It was sort of outside the forced adoption era and she must have been supported by her parents to keep um, her daughter. And I think that she must have been supported because she also had the confidence to go after the man who turned out to be married with children of his own. Um, she went after him for child support in court. And the first time she lost because um, the magistrate, the stipendary magistrate said she didn't have enough um, evidence against him. But then he went off bragging about what he'd done and her sister and a really good family friend overheard him. And um, they went back again and had another bite and the magistrate um, listened to what they said and she ended up winning. Um, unfortunately, he died not long afterwards. So it wasn't a win for the ages, but she obviously had enough support around her and a lack of shame around what happened to her that her allowed her to keep her daughter and love her. And it was just amazing, you know? Um, and then of course there was my grandmother who married Daisy's son, who then, um, you know, had the mental health issues and, and was ended up being separated from her daughter and, and passed away. And I think she didn't have, I know she had the support of her parents, but I'm just thinking if there'd been more in the community that could have helped her, you know, um, stick around and give her the support that she needed at home. I, you know, I'll never know for sure what happened um, in that house, but whatever it was, it wasn't enough for her to be able to manage to stay with her daughter. And then, of course, what happened with my mother is that, you know, she was going through a lot of um, the resultant trauma of that, I guess, when she was 18 and met my father and um, fell pregnant with me and then was shamed out of the house and, and sent into state. So um, again, there was none of that support, you know, and that was right in the thick of the forced adoption era at the pinnacle of it. And in, in fact, well, the pinnacle of the highest number of adoptees. Um, so I think, there must have been at least for a couple of generations a feeling of being a failure as a mother and some shame around that. And when I had my son, um, I didn't feel after the task and, you know, just the process of having my first son had been traumatic, had taken a couple of years, had miscarriages. There was lots of things that happened that made it difficult. And so then when I had him and I, it wasn't the bed of roses that I'd expected and it was suddenly I had lots of trauma coming up and lots of things that made it difficult to connect. You know, I just had this feeling of not being after the task and not worthy of the task. And um, and I think that's something that's probably carried through the generations too. And I felt that when I made that connection with community, I let some of that go. And I don't think I just let it go for me. I think I let it go for them. Um, that's how it felt anyway. I really have felt a great weight lifting off my shoulders because of that connection. And a lot of that too has come because I've made connections within the adoptee community and, and the adoption community in a broader sense. Um, you know, going to open support groups where I've got to interact with mothers who lost children to adoption um, and heard their stories, um, meeting other adopted people and hearing their stories, which 
you know, there can be some vast differences in all of our stories, but there's also a lot of things that are really similar. And so all of those things are about building my community and are all part of the culmination in that Sydney trip. And, you know, I certainly don't think there's a full stop on my story. Like I'm sure things will continue to come up as they do. Um, but I really do feel like there has certainly been some big healing done. I think the um, connection between women in that story is really interesting. And it um, yeah makes me think of some of the research that's been done recently where they talk about because women um, carry their eggs from when they're babies, that you were inside your grandmother. Mm-hmm. So there is that natural connection yeah. that's been lost over two generations, not just yeah. one. So um, the final step of connection is being grounded to country. And for Aboriginal people, that provides a deep sense of identity and purpose and belonging. And it's something that's special and unique in Aboriginal culture that refers to the connection between people and the land and the relationship that's been developed over hundreds of thousands of years. But it is possible to ground yourself in the places that were home to your family, to walk in their footsteps, experience that dirt, the same dirt under their feet that your grandmother walked or your mother walked, and the same sky when you look up. And things like that don't change with time. A house might adjust or change, but the ground is the same, the dirt is the same. And those simple steps can provide a sense of connection to a place that allows an almost spiritual grounding to the past and a place to start your future. And so two questions from that. One is, do you think that you could have done the work that you did and took those steps towards healing here or did that trip to Sydney, did that need to happen to facilitate that? Like, do you think that that allowed you to ground yourself and connect yourself more easily with those family and that family tree? Um, Well, and I'm talking only from my own experience here because I'm, I'm sure there are ways you could maybe do some of these things if you are unable to get back to the country that you came from. Um, But for me, I feel like Concord in Sydney has been calling me back since I was a little kid. Um, So when I was growing up, my favourite book, I'm a massive reader, favourite book was Little Women um, by Louisa M. Alcott. And, uh, you know, I was enamoured with Mami in the book, who is kind of almost like a grandmother figure, you know, once again. Um, and and they grew up in Concord in Massachusetts um, in the USA. And so I, I didn't find out that I came, well, my mother came from Concord in New South Wales until um, you know, it was a fair way along, I think, and I didn't make the connection. And something that was really interesting to me is that I've read a lot of books about the Alcott family and where they um, lived in this little genius cluster of writers. Um, And so there's two houses in that family. One is Orchard House, which everybody goes to visit because it's the home that Louisa M. Alcott um, wrote Little Women in. And when they look around, they sort of see the things they think, you know, uh, relate to that. And so it's a very popular home and it's been kept absolutely beautiful. And, you know, tens of thousands of people visit every year. It's such a huge thing. But just down the street, 
is the actual house where the family grew up and where the story was based and the things that happened in their family you know, with the inspiration for little women. So I guess the reality of that family is actually in a house down the street that nobody goes to visit and isn't kept as beautiful. And um, and I think that in adoption, we often have like this fantasy. And I think all of this time I'd been building like this fantasy for who I thought my family was. And it was all in a house of cards. It wasn't the real thing. Um, and I feel like Concord has been calling me back all of this time to go and immerse myself in the reality of what things were and not go and visit the orchard house of my family, but go and visit the real one where they actually were. And so for me, I think it's been a long time coming and it felt very right to go down there. And I don't think I could have got, um, I know I couldn't have got what I did without visiting those places and those people and coloring things in the way that I did. Um, because nothing I've ever done to this point has ever felt as satisfying to me as that did. So, no, I, I don't think I could have ground myself that way. But had the option not been available to me for any number of reasons, you know, economic reasons or COVID reasons or whatever, maybe, you know, no family to go visit or whatever, I think I could have found other ways to do something. And I think that's much like the ritual that you did at the um, graves. That's mm. something that you can work out for yourself about what's meaningful for you. Yeah, it was it was just incredibly meaningful and it was a long time in the thinking about how I was going to do stuff, you know. Um, there was a lot of planning involved and that extra time of two years, thanks COVID, um, actually really helped with that because it meant I had a lot of time to do things. And by the time I get there, got there, I seriously had no expectations. I had a plan. And for the first time ever, I had not thought through how things might go, what I wanted. And I was going there from my perspective, like what I wanted to get out of the experience. I was not worried about anybody else. Um, and what I ended up finding, maybe because my eyes were open to it, was how much they wanted to connect with me, how important I my going back was important to them, maybe healing for them. Um, you know, one of my cousins, the one that gifted me with all those beautiful memorabilia items, she said, I don't think you understand how important it has been for me to make this connection with you. Um, and so I was just really open to that because normally in a reunion, I probably am getting messages like that, but I'm not hearing them because I'm in an anxious state. And so just, I don't know, it was just, it was so different, Caroline. It was really different. And I don't know, the takeaway from me has just been, um, I don't know take your time to think about these things and to also know that you, um, I think sometimes adopted people, we don't feel like we have the ownership or the right to go connecting with family and things. You know, I often felt like it wasn't my right to own the photos. It wasn't my right to claim these as family because I didn't know any of them. I didn't grow up with them. I didn't have their experiences. And this taught me that, in fact, I do carry their experiences in my DNA and I was very entitled um, to go and connect and to call this my family and feel like I'm part of it. Uh, we had this conversation yesterday, but I wonder, do you think that you will feel differently again about this over time now? Like, do you mm. think that it's changed that future path for you because of this experience that, you know, in five years or in 10 years, you will feel different in yourself beyond just this experience as an experience? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, perspective changes. I mean, that's why we call this show Adopt Perspective because perspective changes. You know, you have experiences and it changes. I still have my adoptive mother is alive. I have two sons that maybe one day will give me grandchildren. I have um, all manner of things that can continue to change and just time. You know, like I said, the two years between when I planned this trip first to when it could actually occur had shifted my perspective. Um so, yeah, it definitely will. And I feel like it will always be a growth perspective for me because I'm open to these things and because um, that's the nature of the beast is you, it's not that time can heal wounds, but time can certainly, if you allow it to, it can, it can grow the experiences within you. You know, it can, it can just change things and change the way you think about them. And so I don't know, that was a really long answer, but yes, I do think my perspective will change as it has done many times. Things I would have said about my adoption when I was young to in my 20s, to in my 30s, to my 40s, and now in my 50s, they're very different things I would have said because my motivations are different. My experiences are different. My perspective is different. So yes. And I'll add that in your 50s, you now have a colour in colored in page i do have a very colored in page and i gotta tell you it is the most amazing feeling in the world um absolutely incredible feeling yeah and i think it's important that it didn't happen only with reunion that there was a whole process both through it probably wouldn't have happened without reunion maybe but it was the process that you went through not that one day event or yeah yeah moment in time yeah I think anyone out there who's you know maybe has not been able to find an alive parent or um has not been able to establish the relationship that they wanted and like don't give there are other ways you know and you you can call our force adoption support service or whatever support service you're going to and you know maybe discuss some of those ways that you could connect when those other avenues aren't available to you because there are ways I'd be happy to have that conversation with anyone that rung in about how we find a way for you, whoever you are and what your story is, to make that just as meaningful and um, real. Yeah. I mean, the way that um, an adopted person explores these connections is going to be unique to their experience. You know, some will have more information than and access than I did and some will have less. Um, and the process that I went through, like I said, was built over many years um, and, you know, was, uh, you know, at risk of things changing, you know, with pandemics and stuff. But just like adoption in general, accepting the things that won't always unfold as quickly or in the way that we would want. Um, sometimes just rolling with things and, you know, what's that Japanese thing where they talk about um, how water carves its way through the rocks, you know, mm. how fire burns everything down and I don't know what the other elements are, but um, water will find a way through the rocks. And I think that adoption experiences can be seen as that sometimes, you know, you'll get these obstacles, but be the water, you know, find your way through that lie of the land that you have you know work through that so and I think it's what you find in yourself it doesn't necessarily need other people because at the end of the day it's about how you do that inside yourself that yeah that's it it's exactly it 
Well, I guess that's all that we have time for today. Um, and as always, we'll put up some relevant links on the podcast notes page. I'll see if I can get myself to update my own little website with a bit of the story and maybe some photos from the trip um, before then. And I can put a link in there as well so you can have a look at some of those artifacts and, and whatever, the a bit of my experience. So thank you so much for your work on this episode and the article that inspired it, Caroline. Oh, thank you. So meanwhile, do you have a story that you'd like to share with us? If you'd like to be interviewed for the podcast, jump onto the main podcast page of the Jigsaw Queensland website and complete the prospective guest form that you'll find there. And note that Dot Perspective can be and is listened to by people all over the world. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Adopt Perspective podcast. If you'd like to find out more, go to the podcast page on www.jigsawqueensland.com and you'll find a wealth of information and resources on the website. If you reside in Queensland, you can reach Jigsaw Queensland's Forced Adoption Support Service on toll-free 1800 210313 or you can call Jigsaw on 07 If you live in another state of Australia, you can still call the Forced Adoption Support Service number and your call will be answered by the Forced Adoption Support Service in the state that you're calling from. In every other state, Relationships Australia operates this service. A big thank you to Matt Sparrow for composing and recording our original theme music. Until next time, I'm Jo Sparrow saying farewell from Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. Thank you.